What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In season two, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now your host, award-winning architect turned entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Kader. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now let's build something. Today, our guest is Kobe Lefkowitz. Kobe is the co-founder of Backyard, a real estate development company focusing on infill development in Southern California. He began his career at developer Ash New York City, Washington REIT, and Runyon Group. He is a graduate of the University of Virginia. We will be talking about Kobe's 3322 Nile Street project in San Diego. More broadly, we will talk about accessory dwelling units, also known as ADUs, and how they can be one answer to our country's challenge of producing housing that all Americans can afford. Thank you so much for being here with us, Kobe. Thanks so much for having me, Atif. I'm really excited to be here and talk a little bit about ADUs and what we're doing at Backyard. Perfect. So let's get started by saying I love Charlottesville. It's one of my top five places that I visited my year of work from home road trips last year. So what are your impressions of the city and how did your time there influence your career path? It's amazing. Charlottesville is one of the best small cities in America. I'm glad you got to spend some time down there. It's becoming a more popular destination to go to with the wineries and beautiful scenery and restaurants and, of course, UVA. I have really fond memories down there. So much packed into such a small city that a lot of other places don't get. Of course, the food, the wineries, the scenery, but also one of the few remaining pedestrian malls in America for mm-hmm. planners or urbanists there. Great architecture. But I started off at NYU before transferring to UVA playing basketball. When I was a senior in high school, I had a kidney transplant, which reprioritized things in my life for sure uh, and changed where basketball fell into place. Really blessed and fortunate to have gotten a kidney for my mom, who's a guardian angel in, in more ways than one. But as it wasn't as important to me then as it had been my whole childhood, I was ready for a little change. Just so happened around this time, uh, I visited my brother, who's the same age as me. Um, I'm a quadruplet. He's number one. I'm number four at UVA and instantly fell in love with the city, school and community. And always great to feel some comfort when you're going down uh, with your big brother, even if it's only by seven minutes. (laughs) So, you know, being born and raised in New York, uh, going to school in New York, was working in New York at that time and assumed I'd just stay there forever. Mm-hmm. I was definitely itching to see a little bit more of the world. UVA provided that opportunity. 
even if it was just a small town in the South, it was a big departure from being in a city in, in Westchester and kind of around New York. Funnily enough, I don't know if I'd be in Southern California if it wasn't mm-hmm. for VA because it showed me there was a world outside of New York. Uh, you know, there's that famous New Yorker image where you have the city, 8th Avenue, 9th Avenue, the Hudson, then California all the way on the other end of, uh, mm-hmm. of the country. And that's pretty, that's how the world is when you're from New York. But thankfully, I, I got to experience life outside of there. And, you know, NYU and UVA are, are polar opposites. To get perspectives from both those places was amazing. And I really mm-hmm. valued it. Gave me a lot of perspective from both ends of the spectrum. NYU, of course, gives you the energy, dynamism, and, and global values that really isn't possible at most other schools. Um, almost all of my friends were international and doing really incredible things. Mm-hmm. They were operating as professionals, you know, full-time jobs or, or part-time jobs, actors, actresses, traders, very different experience than what most people get in college. Mm-hmm. I'm so close with many of them today, still keep up with them. But you know, UVA was sort of more that traditional college experience that I wasn't necessarily looking for when I first started my you know, college journey but became one that, that I think I sought out after that, that year at NYU. It's a much more organic, smaller, more incremental place in, in many ways. It's a lot more tight-knit than NYU, which doesn't really have that. You're kind of just in the city by yourself. Mm-hmm. I went to architecture school there, which is an even more insular community. Mm-hmm. We wore the black tees and the black jeans, which stood out even more mm-hmm. uh, day with the pastel colors and the Sperry's and, you know. Pop the, colors. The God, people did that. Gross. <laughs> do it is very much uh, a part of the scene at, at uva uh-huh. uh, very preppy and you know in the architecture school that uh, wasn't necessarily us but it gave me the time and space to consider what i really wanted to do which mm-hmm. is not in new york you, you don't have that it's moving so fast there's so many influences that you can't step back and see you know what's what's important for you so i'd say in very literal terms i went from thinking about the type of projects that only get done when you're in uh, you know a, a larger city and and that type of influence to wanted to do more fine-grained, intimate spaces at a neighborhood level, uh, more informed by a small town or a small city, more community-based. Mm-hmm. I'd say both of them still in many ways inform what I'm, I'm doing today. Mm-hmm. If I was only in New York and I had never gone down to Virginia, mm-hmm. it, it's very easy to kind of get in this bigger is better, large New York real estate scene mindset. And going down to Charlottesville, you know, helped me show that this is not what most of America is. And, and mm-hmm. there's a really different and in, in some respects, better way of building. I just want to mention in full honesty, one of my best or my favorite basketball games that I've ever watched was when uh, UMBC beat UVA in the first round of the 2018 <laughs> tournament. And I think there's probably half of America that agree with me on that one. So. It, it was tough. Uh, my brother's a diehard fan. I was, you know, obviously a fan of UVA and, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't mention that for much of the, that year. But then the next year we came back, won the, won the tournament. <laughs> yeah. So uh, redeemed. I'm happy to have lost to 16 seed because it we won the next year. But sure, I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> so you started off at uh, Washington REIT, a value add owner operator of multifamily assets in DC and the Southeast and at Ash, New York City, which is known for its iconic hotels. Uh, and you also worked at the Runyon Group, which is a West Coast, East Coast real estate company. So what did you learn from uh, each of these experiences? And how did you know that it was time to start your own thing? Yeah. So Runyon was my first experience of being on the West Coast and being in Southern California. Being a New Yorker, there's kind of this rivalry or this thought that you have with with Los Angeles and certainly mm-hmm. California. There's a clash of cultures. 
And it was, wasn't something I considered, but going down to UVA, like I said, broadened my mindset and it became a compelling place that I wanted to understand and explore. I got an opportunity through just cold calling and emailing and annoying uh, the, the main principal there, a guy named Joey Miller, who, who remains a, a close mentor and, and, and confidant uh, today to go and, and see what he was doing and basically shadow him. They were doing a lot of mix and continue to do a lot of mixed use retail, a little bit of office, a little bit of residential in Los Angeles, working with really interesting creative tenants. It was different than anything I'd seen in the past because it required a lot more qualitative work with working with smaller retail tenants. You know, these aren't the big boxes of the world. Mm-hmm. Joe's surf shop, right? But it's Joe's uber luxury boutique surf shop mm-hmm. uh, next to this great acai place and uh, you know, uh, we had a Tom Dixon in, in platform in, in Culver City. So it not only brought me to the West Coast to see more of the country and and work with these really unique and creative partners, but it exposed me to, uh, for the first time, I'd say in a meaningful way, the extent of our housing crisis, which informs a lot of my work today. Took a pit stop you know, between there and, and Ash, where, where I just uh, left at Washington Reed in mm-hmm. D.C., it's a much more institutional shop than what I've been used to at mm-hmm. running and some of the smaller experiences I had. I joke with people that, you know, even though it wasn't a very big firm, it was the biggest place I'd ever been. Everywhere else, it was 10 people or less. That was mm-hmm. much more the environment that I was used to. But it gave me a lot more to chew on because of the size of it and it being a publicly traded company. I was on the asset management team, uh, but picked up a lot of other skills there. But within that core asset manager role, my job was really getting into the nitty gritty of how buildings operate, how a portfolio comes together, and then forecasting that to the street, which has a lot of uh, you know stressors to it. And you need to make sure that your numbers are right and your pencils mm-hmm. are perfect. And then understanding and organizing those larger institutional imperatives. Uh, it's not an experience that I think a lot of people get in real estate. And it w- was one that was really powerful. Mm-hmm. Great start to, you know, place to get my feet wet. Ash was a much different experience. It's a design firm and a developer, which was a really cool place for me to be, especially being in uh, my architecture school background. But to give you a sense, you know, we'd listen to 70s Bollywood music remixes in our Brooklyn warehouse and then our Soho loft. It was much more my speed. Wait, you said Bollywood? Yeah, you know, whatever. whatever. (laughs) So our our creative director there, our chief creative officer, Will Cooper, uh, had gone on a trip to India for design inspiration for some of our latest products. Ash, this may be misappropriated, but I believe is the largest stager in America, certainly in New York and in a large presence. And so he, we went there to produce some more, or he went there rather to produce furniture for our apartments that we had staged. He went there on a several week trip and brought back the influenced experiences. And then we had, uh, you know, Bollywood remixes <laughs> playing in, in the office, which was a ton of fun. But, you know, before diving into all of that, I, I do have to thank Ari Heckman and, and Jonathan Minkoff for giving me the chance at Ash. Um, mm-hmm. Similar to my experience at Runyon, I just cold called them, cold emailed them a couple of times uh, and said, look, I just want to talk with you guys. You're doing some really inspired and interesting work. I'm not asking for a job, you know, just mm-hmm. want to know how you guys see the development process because um, it's something I really admire. Mm-hmm. They ended up carving out a role for me, which was, you know, at a dream company. The, the type of work that Ash did Certainly hotels, as, as you touched on, but um, it was really creative, mixed-use, multifamily work as well. Bringing back some of my experiences in LA, similar types of tenants on the retail front, mm-hmm. um, and, and the the residential was was very inspired. You know, I remember 
I was going on tours of the buildings and we had properties in Providence. And I was just amazed at the level of detail on the smallest things from the, the cabinetry to the millwork it's even the appliances and a lot of these were adaptively reused the structures is the dean that you're talking about or other properties i stayed in the dean which is a great property the first brothel hotel (laughs) uh it may or may not at one point have had ghosts but you know not today hasn't in a long time in its past but uh i don't know if you touched on that with anthony pellegrino who was was you know oh he was on the the podcast earlier this season for ash uh yes so we spoke about uh, ghosts at the hotel, uh, Peter and Paul, and I let him know about uh, the ghosts that I've met on my uh, travels this year in Maryland and Virginia. Well, okay, so just picking up more ghosts as we go. Uh, mm-hmm. the season, yeah. I guess I didn't want to speak out of turn, and you know, in case Anthony hadn't, you know, uh, spread that out to the world. But you know, there's stories when you're working in older properties in older cities; these things happen. So <laughs> it wasn't at the Dean. Uh, these were on uh, Way Bossett Street and. Mm-hmm. We had some in Onlyville and we had some on, on Custom House. Really lovely assets. Providence is a gorgeous city for people. I love, love Providence. Love it, love it. I jokingly call Hoboken half price, more beautiful, cleaner version of Brooklyn. But yep. I think Providence is essentially the same thing. Yep. It very, very much the same. But it's a really cool town. And, and the, the quality of work there was something that I hadn't truly experienced in the residential realm. It was simple apartments, but it, it really spoke to the importance of considering the smallest details and, and not to be overly or concentrate overly on the minutia, but mm-hmm. these things tend to matter. Really lucky throughout Ash and the types of projects we got to work on to be with a team of, of superstars. Kevin Seavers, Jen Weber, of course, AP, Anthony Pellegrino, John Inari, mm-hmm. and a ton of others I got a chance to work with um, was really special. When I got to Ash, I was 23 years old, young, wide-eyed. I'm still young and wide-eyed, mm-hmm. you know, I was about to say that, so I'm glad you said that. (laughs) But even more than today, right? And they gave me a ton of rope and a ton of opportunity in very real terms to empower me to think like an owner and everything that comes with it. Wearing a hat today, but they gave me a ton of hats to juggle and put on. Really, as much as I reached out and and grabbed for, they gave me that opportunity. Very rare at development firms because... Mm -hmm. These are risky, large assets. There's a lot of money at play. And, and they're know, very hierarchical companies too. Very hierarchical. And working at Ash, it was amazing. You know, our, our smaller team was me, Ari, John, Kevin, and, and Jen that I'd mentioned. There is, you know, of course there's some structure, but I felt as comfortable voicing opinions, saying what I thought and uh, as anybody else, and not just that, it wasn't just lip service. Mm-hmm. My opinions, I felt, and you know, represented through my work there over three years, were heard and, and implemented in many ways, which was such an awesome experience that a lot of people never get. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and to get it at such a young age was was incredible. With all that said, you know, this sounds great, awesome experience. What leads you to go to start your own thing? Mm-hmm. Ash was moving more towards a trajectory of doing hospitality and hotel, mm-hmm. which not, you know, shameless plug. I think they're some of the best boutique hotels in America. I've stayed in them and, and they're really lovely, but that's hasn't been my experience or background. And mm-hmm. as much as I waded into that world and got more familiar with it and comfortable with it, ultimately my heart is more in housing and, and mm-hmm. more, you know, I'm an urbanist. I'm an urban planner by by training. How buildings meet the street and interact with broader communities, and how you marry that within the development paradigm. That's where the opportunity for backyard first arose. 
going back to not quite my roots in Southern California, but several years before with this notion of ADUs, which, you know, happy to talk about later. But that was, it, it came about at a time where mm-hmm. our trajectories were just kind of diverging. Not saying that I learned everything I could have learned, you know, it's it's not one of those, but it was just a, a natural time given uh, where the industry is moving. So what's Backyard? Backyard's a real estate development firm, infill development that I co-founded with my now partner, Roe Gold. We do focus on ADUs, but other tools to promote and create strong and high quality infill development, mm-hmm. primarily in mixed use, walkable and vibrant neighborhoods. These are buzzwords that get thrown around mm-hmm. by a lot of people. What does that really mean? They're, it's kind of intangible, but to, to give you some tactical or tangible proof or, or evidence behind this, our first three properties are in North Park in San Diego, which is not the dense urban neighborhood you might find in midtown Manhattan or, or central business districts around the country, but it's very much an urbane, walkable, buzzy neighborhood uh, mm-hmm. you know, where all the trendy kids hang out. There's great restaurants, cafes, and bars, a lot of fantastic cultural institutions. Mm-hmm. Those are the places we like to operate near, on and along and in those neighborhoods, not just because they're exciting places to be. But demographically, we think there's a, a massive shift towards living in these types of places. Mm-hmm. Historically, without going too much into it, you know, America's has been quite polarized. For the last 100 years, we've built almost exclusively in single, single family, family subdivisions, right? Uh, and re- in recent years, we've built three, 400, 500 unit apartment buildings. You don't quite have this missing middle concept and notion, right? But neighborhoods like North Park, and, uh, you know, like Society Hill in Philly and Georgetown mm-hmm. and DuPont Circle in D.C. And you know, I can go down the list that were built more than 100 years ago, have these really lovely, fine grained human scaled environments that are mm-hmm. mixed. And all these great words that we believe and you know, we throw around, but we believe that are so in demand that they're the most expensive place to live in America. And the opportunity that exists through Backyard is to incrementally add. Uh, units of housing supply to hopefully alleviate these pricing pressures through more homes for people to live in and get to experience these places that are quite frankly, just, I think the best places to live. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's talk about project that um, Backyard is pursuing. So 3322 Nile Street in Altadena is a neighborhood in San Diego. Uh, tell us about this area. Yeah. So Altadena is kind of a little pocket in this broader North Park neighborhood. It's about a uh, a 10-minute walk to the heart of, of all the restaurants on 30th Street University, uh, but you know a couple of other main cross streets as well. It is really charming being a New Yorker working in Southern California. Every time I see palm trees, my eyes light up. Um, mm-hmm. It's very much the palm tree-lined streets, the charming craftsman homes, uh, a lot of Spanish-influenced smaller structures as well, two to four units. There's a real great diversity and mix um, of housing stock. It's not just exclusively single-family homes, mm-hmm. but it's you know your charming single-family homes. But next to a two-story mid-rise development, missing middle, you know type of a typology that isn't around in, in most places. Nile is a four-unit property, or will be a four-unit property within this context, kind of slotting nicely between its neighbors. There's an existing duplex on the front of the lot. Uh, on the back because of these nascent ADU laws, we'll be able to build two more units. So mm-hmm. in total upon stabilization, we'll have four. 
it'll be a really lovely new design that we, is contemporary, but nods to some of the context and vernacular of the area. But that's the, the high level of the project. Okay. And then what were the specific challenges and opportunities um, you had on the site? I'm, I'm guessing that given there were, it's a relatively new context, there might've been pushback, there might've been other issues. What, what was going on as you were developing this development strategy? Yeah. So I'd say, first and foremost, these are smaller lots. Mm-hmm. So anybody who's familiar with development knows, you know, the more space you have, the better. How wide, how deep? So the, this is about a 4,000 square foot lot. So we're about... 40 by 100? Uh, a, little, a little bit narrower and a little bit shorter. But those are roughly the dimensions. And that's difficult when you have neighbors on either side of you. Mm-hmm. It's made a little easier. One of the great opportunities in San Diego, but certainly Western cities, is most of them have alleyways. So mm-hmm. construction materials, we can use the alleyway. Uh, really helpful. But it, it also provides almost a second entrance for the property. So that back home, you won't have to walk through effectively what feels like someone sliding around, along or shimmying along your, your house to get to the back. That's in Georgetown as well. Exactly. That feeling, which some might say intimate. I, I might. My friends ridicule me for that. You know, when I see a small alleyway, I think that's so charming. Others might think it's an invasion of uh, personal space, but it mitigates that by having having these spaces. The biggest opportunity that we see through these types of projects, which are enabled by underlying ADU laws, the accessory dwelling unit laws, is that um, we can site the new structure at the back of the lot. The front structure is not quite at the front. There's front setbacks, which is a conversation for another time. It's a very Mm -hmm. frustrating uh, institution, I think, that limits a a lot of um, fine-grained and and good urbanism. But we have this core courtyard space, this backyard, as it were, that informs our practice. Mm -hmm. And that will let in light to both of the units, sure, but it's a place where people can come together. This isn't a a co-housing concept where we're saying everyone must live in, in apartments together, you know, that you need to all be friends, whatever. If you want to be friends, you make friends. That's fantastic. But, you know, what's shocking to me as a New Yorker going to Southern California is that I don't want to put a number on it, but maybe it's 80, 90% of apartments don't have any outdoor space. It's 75 and sunny in Southern California, most days of the year. And yet you have an asphalt parking strip and you're built out max to the lot. Mm -hmm. It's a huge opportunity to offer a little bit of greenery, a little bit of outdoor space you know, that, that's, that's not often. And we have a lot of four-legged friends at our properties currently, and we plan for them to be parts of our communities in the future. Um, <laughs> you mean so, dogs and cats and rabbits and, and, okay. you know, anything else you, you want to bring. And so that gives some space for them as well. They're not cooped up in, a, in a, an apartment. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk about the approach for entitlements for this unique type of residential product. The listeners know I'm a city planning commissioner in Hoboken, so I can just go off, pop off on a lot of what that entails. Uh, so tell me, what is your approach? So we're lucky that these are as of right. I know mm-hmm. in New York, certainly, and in other parts of the country, there's significant challenges with delivering projects because they might not adhere to underlying zoning or they might have to get a certain amount of community input and review, which mm-hmm. can be a very powerful tool, but it can also be an obstacle for some for some projects, as I think we've seen in San Francisco over the last decade in, in getting projects built. There are, of course, community concerns that must be heard and, and considered. But I think perhaps sometimes the pendulum swings too far where mm-hmm. 
nothing gets built. And that exacerbates the housing crises and community crises that a, a lot of people are facing. So in that sense, we're, we're lucky that we don't have to go you know, cap in hand, as it were, for every single project that we want to do. As you, you well know as, as well, intimately, the longest part of our process, almost longer than construction, is going to be approval permits. Mm-hmm. In several California cities and increasingly elsewhere as they adopt these, these uh, more progressive infill development laws, there are these standardized plans that can be approved. We're currently not using any of those standardized plans, but our hope is in the future, in near-term future, we will be able to submit those, which mm-hmm. will reduce our time in the city, we think, quite materially. Those are probably the two main considerations, that this is as of right, and that if we can standardize it, it'll help us to build more housing. And not just more housing, more housing, more housing, but very thoughtful and considered housing in a quicker and more efficient manner. Mm-hmm. So my my thought, and you tell me, is one of the, the strains or one of the lines of pushback that you get is about a lack of a lack of beauty, a lack of design, that it's prefabricated, that it looks like it was off of an assembly line. So instead, you have a designer on this project. That's JSP Design Studio, and they specialize in remodels, additions, and accessory units. So how did you find them, and what was their design process for this project? Yeah, so we're working with Jose Ponce at JSP Design. He's a really terrific and, and talented designer, but an even lovelier person to work with, which is very important as you're going through these sometimes long and arduous processes. And mm-hmm. we couldn't ask for a better partner. We got connected to him through just internal networks in San Diego with a general contractor, Nimai Hempel, who we work with on some of our projects of Hempel Construction. And it's been a very collaborative approach. Being from a design background, even though I'm not an architect by training, I did all the studios. It just happened to get a planning degree at the end of it. Design really matters to me, and I think existentially for a lot of our communities. And of course, Jose, being the designer that he is, uh, believes that as well. And so it's a collaborative process of making sure when we deliver these units, they're not just four walls in a box, that sometimes new housing is not unfairly ascribed as being, but a thoughtful approach that you know, for example, in Southern California, we'll probably use lighter color palettes. We'll probably integrate, you know, more open space, but more windows, open volumes to take advantage of the light in the air that in another market, it might not make as much sense to, to use these processes. Northeast? Maybe not in the Northeast. Uh, you know, right now it is freezing rain here in New York. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, uh, or maybe it's it's dissipated now, but but certainly this morning. But every Regional geography calls for different contexts. Mm-hmm. And a big part of what we do is be mindful of that and, and hopefully respond to, to that vernacular. Okay. Walk our listeners through the project as it will look when it is completed. You mentioned the alleyways, you mentioned the front and the back. If we were at the sidewalk and we wanted to come in, what are we seeing? What are the materials? Talk to us. Yeah. So the front duplex, which we won't be demoing, we'll, we'll be keeping it in place, is nine foot, 10 foot tall stucco. Uh, the duplex is not, it's one story. It's not stacked on top of each other. They're kind of a, long, which is interesting. We'll probably paint that white or, or a very light gray. It's currently yellow. Mm-hmm. There's a side entrance that takes you to the common backyard and ultimately to the second duplex structure. Materials are still being finalized and the finished package is, is basically there. But it'll be a pitched two-story structure with two one-bedroom units so we'll have two one-bedrooms on the front, 
two mm-hmm. up, one bedrooms on the back, four units in total. And you'll have this interplay with this shorter, a little bit longer duplex with this pitched roof volume in the back um, that kind of rises above this duplex, but isn't really taller than any of its neighbors. Mm-hmm. I think in total, we're still playing a little bit with the elevation. We'll be anywhere from you know 22 to 30 feet. So not imposing on the site by any means. When you walk into the courtyard, you'll have the string lighting. We're using all native landscaping and mm-hmm. being very mindful to, we're using DG as well, but, but to not use as much grass because water is, is a real consideration in Southern yes. California. And to be honest, I think a lot of lawns could be frivolous. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly front, front yards that see very little usage. So if we can create a, a really highly curated common courtyard space without putting in you know the traditional trees and grass that aren't native to the region, uh, that's something we're looking to do. So it, it might not feel like a desert climate, but it, mm-hmm. it's you know, kind of maybe Palm Springs influenced in, in that courtyard space. Okay. I think uh, I've been amazed at how valuable courtyards and those garden spaces are. So I own a building in Hoboken that is a front and a back. So it's three units in the front, three in the back, around 6,000 square feet total. And the, the tenants love the courtyard. It's so unique because there's actually the, an alley pass. It's basically San Diego in, in the middle of Hoboken. It's an alley pass way through, and then you have the huge courtyard, and then the back buildings where the, the smaller the studio units are. And so definitely dig in. I, I think I appreciate what you were saying about the landscaping, uh, because uh, in particular, I mean, Southern California is a desert. And with the, the ability to have landscaping that doesn't need maintenance, now look at your P&L. You're spending less money on um, actually operating that asset. So I dig it. So I'm going to take a break here to uh, let our listeners know that we'll be having the wonderful urban designer Ifoma Ibo on the show next month. Ifoma is the founding principal of Creative Urban Alchemy. Subscribe to the podcast and check out our past episodes at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Redist is a new venture-backed technology company that is working to transform how public financing is used to encourage building construction across our country. The Real Deal recently featured the company after our $1.9 million seed round of financing that include San Francisco-based venture capital firm Home Team Ventures. Learn more about why tech investors are making a big bet on Redist at redist.us. Finally, one of the most important finishes, interior renovations, is right under our feet. That's a natural wood flooring, and wood flooring can elevate a space no matter the style. Helena Flooring, based in Newark, New Jersey, sources and installs stunning traditional and engineered wood flooring from the United States, Asia, and Europe. For anything from my renovation projects to the iconic super tall high rises by Extel Development, my former employer. So check them out at helenaflooring.com. Okay, let's talk about affordability. The real income of the average office worker has not changed since the 1980s. Only 20% of Americans own stocks in any public traded company. The net worth of millennials is zero. And over 50% of 20 and 30-somethings either have gotten significant financial assistance from their parents or lived at their parents' homes for over a year during the pandemic. 
Uh, algorithmic iBuyers are estimated to have purchased 40% of homes sold in Phoenix, driving up the, the price uh, for homes in that area and many other places like it. And these are all facts that are necessary to help bring into focus the ever-growing crisis of wealth concentration and consequently home affordability in America. What does affordability mean to you? So I'll start by saying that you know there's this arbitrary threshold of 30% of one's gross income allocated towards housing that's generally agreed upon by HUD, housing nonprofits, and uh, housing advocates generally. But that's arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Affordability and the precarity of un- unaffordable places is something people feel really intensely and intimately. I, I think one of the best references that, that I've I've read uh, on affordability generally was Matthew Desmond's Evicted. I, I forget what year it came out, but I read it within months of its publication uh, in two days and was absolutely gripped by it. It tells a story of the very raw and intimate and real consequence of, of housing costs and prices in America, but specifically in Milwaukee. People are faced all around the country and millions of people with, do, do they pay rent or do they give their kids a meal? They're going to go to the doctors or they're going to give their landlord a check. These are decisions that people shouldn't have to make, but increasingly they're being forced to make. The Joint Center for Housing Studies, Harvard's Institute, has recently come out with their 2022 report or 2021 report. On housing affordability? Yes, exactly. And you know the metrics for how many people can afford a rental home in, in the United States are quite jarring. Nearly 50% of all renters in America, which I believe is around 35 million households, but mm-hmm. that could be wrong. Um, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, face some level of housing burden. So that's more than that 30% threshold. It becomes significantly less arbitrary when you're spending more than half of your gross income towards housing, which is roughly 25% of all renters. That is a frankly unacceptable and damning statistic on, mm-hmm. I think, American policy that is quite literally tens of millions of people who are forced to be making these types of precarious decisions. And and I think it's something that can't continue. Increasingly, you know, there's been this broader movement uh, towards providing more places for people to live, this YIMBY versus NIMBY dichotomy, if you will. Mm-hmm. And the YIMBY school of thought redounds to effectively building more homes for people to live in to reduce the overall cost of housing, which I think is a very compelling narrative that's what's known as small A affordable, not big A affordable. Exactly. Small A affordable through increasing more supply mm-hmm. to decentralize the place where people can live. And th- this is certainly needed because for, for anyone who studies uh, housing numbers, even for 15 minutes, you'll know we, we're currently facing a quite severe supply and demand imbalance. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cause for unaffordability, at least as I've written about it and, and as I see it, and I think other people in this space uh, are recognizing as well, is that we simply have, we don't have enough housing in the places with the highest demand, which allows people who have more means, who are a little bit wealthier, even if it's relatively so, to help out those who are less means and who are more marginalized. Uh, This creates more uh, isolated and exclusive communities. It deprives opportunity. It leads to adverse health outcomes as those who can't afford are pushed out to the margins of society in our places. There is only one solution to solving housing shortages. It's to build more housing. Mm-hmm. Now, there, that, that is, I think, a precept that you have to accept 
if you're in any of these conversations. But what follows from there is really important. The quality of the housing matters. You know, I think what a lot of people who perhaps take some umbrage with the Yimbyism debate is, is it's not just build as much as we can everywhere and whatever it looks like, wherever it is, doesn't matter because we're faced with this first pressing issue. Mm -hmm. uh, it really does matter because if and when, and it might be sooner rather than later, we build enough homes for everyone. And, and I'm confident that we have enough momentum that it won't be within the next five years. It won't be within the next 10, but in the next 15, 20, we will start to correct these massive national housing shortages if policymakers are willing to take the right steps. That's a big if, but I'm hopeful and I'm op optimistic about that. It just uh, depends how long it is until the next election, right? Uh, it very much may depend. You know, and a big part of that is people, local officials, and perhaps national officials as well, like to see things that can be accomplished under their tenure, whether it's four years or six years or two years. You know, newsflash. Building housing does not take <laughs> you know, that quick. It, it's a very long and, and generational process in creating our places. Mm -hmm. And also a pile of uh, de-icing salt is not as sexy to cut a string in front of as a new housing development. And it's even less sexier to renovate the existing housing units that don't have uh, you know, running water or, mm -hmm. <laughs> or, or properly insulated walls. So we there needs to be a, a reprioritization over yes, we, we need to create more places. Yes, we need to maintain the existing places we have. Mm -hmm. But those new places that we create and the, and the existing places that we maintain have to be of a fundamental good quality and yes. of a high quality. Because what we'll have in, in 15 years, 20 years, in my hopeful case, where we have enough housing, is that which is less desirable will will be the only of the realm of, of people you know, who can't afford anything else. And then we're just reintroducing these concepts of segregation and mm -hmm. class accessibility and affordability, but in different ways. And, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's something that I think is a real pressing issue. It doesn't take prominence over the need to build more housing. It's mm -hmm. not like you sit and discuss what the shutter color should be you know, for, for five years and say, well, this is unacceptable, mm -hmm. but it needs to be hand in hand. Yes, yes, we have to build a lot of housing, but yes, it has to be of a fundamentally high quality. To help us understand, what are accessory dwelling units in comparison to things like companion units, granny units, tiny homes, and other this long tail of terms that are related to that? <laughs> yeah. So an ADU, an accessory dwelling unit, at very base level is any accessory home to, to the main one, any additional one. So that could be one unit, a granny cottage on the back of a single family home. Mm -hmm. It could also mean two or three accessory units to a 10-unit apartment building. It is a very catch-all term. A granny flat, you know, a, a cottage, a tiny home, or, or even a garage apartment above or below, those are all forms of ADUs, mm -hmm. uh, but they just look a little bit different. Um, modern ADUs, such as the type that we're building, are functionally indistinguishable from really high-quality infill development. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not the cutesy 300 square foot tiny home that totally know, Instagrammable, totally Instagrammable. I like to think ours are going to be very Instagrammable, but they're yeah. not going to be the ones where you cart off into the woods and go hike a mountain uh, <laughs> you know, and, come and say, I give up on Brooklyn. I'm going to Montana. I'm done. Exactly. Hey, there, that might be well be in both of our futures. You know, the next <laughs> five years, Montana is a beautiful place. Um, but, they actually gained a congressional seat this year too, because of population growth. 
yeah, Bo- Bozeman is a great town. A lot of fun stuff going on in Missoula. I, I was actually in Montana uh, driving through. A short aside, uh, my sister uh, just graduated from UCLA, younger sister. Uh, my mom is a, a great fan of road trips. So we drove back from Los Angeles to New York and went the long way. Uh, so was was driving through Montana. It's, it's a really spectacular part of the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... ADU. So we talked about, so now we know what ADUs are. We know the crisis of affordability in America. How are the two things tied together? Why ADUs related to affordability? What does that mean? The way that that we look at it at Backyard and that I, as Kobe, look at it as an individual is what is the easiest way to provide more housing in the place that need it most? Mm-hmm. While it'd be great if I could stroke my magic wand and say, upzone every single neighborhood. I mean, not every neighborhood, but allow for more intensity and and density in in a lot of areas that I think can support it with the existing infrastructure. That's not possible. You can't go through and rewrite the zoning codes at every municipality and every locality because many of them won't accept it. There's going to be years of community review. That's a decades-long process. We don't have decades. There are millions of people struggling today and in California and in Mm -hmm. places around the country. That's very visible by people sleeping on the street. You know, homelessness fundamentally is an issue and, and definitionally it's an issue of people not having enough homes. There are other causes beyond it, but if you are homeless, you do not have a home. How do you solve that? Provide that person a home and other attendant services, of course, um, but that's the base issue. So how do you go about providing these homes, these much needed homes in a way that can actually be carried out? not waving our wands, not saying, I wish everything was affordable, not saying developers, how dare you not you know, do this or that or, or whatever. We have to be realistic and pragmatic. ADUs in, in dense areas, such as North Park in, in San Diego, but you know they're very popular in Los Angeles as well, that have these existing you know, mid-level of density, gentle density to, to these neighborhoods is a very elegant solution that can be done today. If you so California in, in 2016 passed the first ADU laws, they were a little bit onerous, which I, I think we may talk about in the second to start with, but through iterations and various revisions, it is effectively a state level preemption of local municipalities that allows for these types of units to be built. And mm-hmm. there have been tens of thousands of permits that have been filed just in the in the past few years that would not have been possible had the underlying zoning, in many cases, single-family zoning, an artificially constrained single-family zoning, been in place. It is not the only solution. It is not the end-all solution. It will not deliver 10 million units today. It's a process. There's a study that we looked to that McKinsey published, I believe, in 2019 that looked at the effect or the the potential effect of, of these laws. And in California alone, through ADU and, and these smaller progressive infill development laws could stand to add anywhere from a million to almost 2 million units of housing, you know, 1.8 million units of housing. That's extraordinary. That That's potentially homes for, for several million people, just mm-hmm. ADU legislations and smaller infill development. This is not upzone every single neighborhood to 25 stories. It's can you put in a, a duplex, one unit, two unit, three units here or there, on these lots in major cities in and around California, which is 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 pretty staggering. So for tech folks, when Kobe you just said that the the number of potential housing units that could be created, that's some serious TAM. So who are you looking to serve with Backyard? 
Yeah. So to kind of go back to our, our general thesis of delivering high quality homes in walkable, mixed use, dense and vibrant neighborhoods, it's primarily for people who want to live in these types of areas. Where demographic trends are moving is mm-hmm. from millennials to Gen Z and Gen, you know, whatever the new name uh, for, for the latest generations are. The generation that will save us all. That's what the next one is. So. Oh, no. Okay, it's good to know. I'll start going, uh, telling my baby cousins that, you know, hey guys, this is you, no pressure, and have them internalize it from a young age. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever those generations may be, they're shifting much more towards wanting to live in these walkable, desirable places. Uh, Daniel Paralek, who's an urban planner and architect uh, who actually coined the term missing middle, Opticos Design, conducted a study where 60, upwards of 60% of Americans surveyed said they'd like to live in walkable neighborhoods, somewhere you can get a coffee on the corner, not somewhere where you can live in a 50-story apartment building, mm-hmm. well, that's a certain type of person, but just go to a park, be able to walk to get coffee, walk to meet friends, very base level walkability, which unfortunately in a vast majority of America is not possible because of our underlying zoning and, and building code regulations. Mm-hmm. That is who we're building for at a high level. Okay. Now, yes, you know these will have a certain level of design language. They're going to be in tend to be in younger neighborhoods, mm-hmm. but it's not as though we look at an application and say, "Oh, you're this age. You went to this school. You work in this sector. You're our tenant." It's much broader than that. We may ultimately find some trends in the types mm-hmm. of homes that be that are in these neighborhoods. But um, we think as we expand from San Diego to Los Angeles and ultimately different markets, the desire to be in these types of neighborhoods in quality apartments and housing accommodation will, will win the day. So it's the idea perhaps a little bit less about defining people on male, female, this rage, age. It's actually more about the mindset that you're yep. looking for. Got it. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. So help us understand how there could be ties and overlaps between the work that that you're doing and you want to do at Backyard with things like prefabrication, smart home devices, rent to buy, short-term leasing, and other other micro-innovations. Absolutely. So these are all various fields that we're actively exploring at Backyard. I'll I'll start at the top of the list and and work down. Prefab has been this this great promise for decades that Mm -hmm. it can housing in shorter periods of time for for far cheaper. I don't think we're quite there today. There are some really innovative companies who are doing this, ones that we're very close with and we have many relations to. It's something we're very open to. Increasingly, what we're seeing is SIPs, which are these structurally insulated panels, more common in the Northeast than they are in, in California, represent a possibility because you don't have to build the existing home and then crane it onto site and, and deal with these issues. You're basically get, get the walls or these panels, you put them up on site. Um, it, it's, it's almost like a Lego set, which is, which is pretty cool. It's not something that we're committing to today. I think our first several projects will be stick built with traditional construction techniques, but it's something we have our eyes on. And that grand promise is probably, you know, I, I can't put any degree of certainty on it, mm-hmm closer to reality in, in the next few years and, and sooner than people might expect. From smart home devices, you know, there's a lot of money that's been raised on prop tech and, and smart property management solutions. And I think a lot of them are, are really important. They don't need to be reinventing the wheel. I think sometimes there are companies that say, this is the greatest thing in the world. How could you have ever lived with this before, but without this before? Mm-hmm. But there are uh, solutions in search of a problem. Yes. We want to keep it very simple. 
So what does that mean? Using your phone to enter your apartment. Maybe you have a code that, that gets sent to your phone or you have a, a QR code that you can use every time you go into your apartment. So you don't have to fumble around for your keys. Paying your rent on an app instead of having to pay it by check, which is mm-hmm. very common in New York and most places in the country. I mean, when was the last time you've used a check other than antiquated systems that require you to use a check? I love sending checks by bill pay. So I basically just go in and have all my stuff for for Redist and for, for a lot of properties. And I just send checks to people. And it's the best because I don't have to like know anyone's like account numbers or anything. So I don't, I don't touch it. So the bank prints it out and sends it, which sounds a little arcane, but it's actually really easy for me. It works for you. And I yeah. think, you know, at the end of the day, it, it matters what the user interaction experience is. Yeah. And so for you as a user, that's fantastic. It's the same thing with settlement times in, in, in finance. Like, okay, okay you, you use, uh, or as, as I see it, use a credit card or you send a wire transfer or you Venmo somebody, and it might look like that money's instantaneously in your account, but mm-hmm. there's a two or three day period where it actually takes to, to settle. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter as a user. I, I think I have the money today. That's, that's what matters. It's the same thing with paying in these apps or, or using these payment processing for whatever it may be. There are other things like using a Nest thermostat and controlling on your phone, service requests on your phone, very basic but important issues or, or you know things that people deal with every single day. Mm-hmm. Those are things that we're actively integrating into our properties. I can't say that we're using anything more than these you know bare bone essentials, but when you start to stack them up, there's five, six, seven, or eight of these that are critical. And I think mm-hmm. it's a differentiating factor between someone living in an apartment that doesn't have these and you do. It goes from something that you never think about to being, oh my God, I moved somewhere and mm-hmm. where are my keys now? I left them in my backpack or a different pair of jeans. And oh man, it's the 29th of the month. I don't have an automated payment. I have to go run down to the, you know, the office and, and submit my check or whatever it might be. So we're definitely in that space. As for the rent to buy and the short-term leasing, we are fundamentally a rent not a not a rent to buy, but mm-hmm. a, a build to rent, which is this large trend in real estate. Say that again, build to rent. Build to rent. So there's this notion of, I don't know if you're familiar, SFRs, single family, single family rental. And increasingly, there's been single family rental communities that are built ground up. Got it. There are so many acronyms. I mean, look, ADUs, we're talking about it today. There's so many acronyms. It's tough to keep track of all of them. But this is important because you know, to talk of the missing middle and, and the type of housing that's been built, we haven't had much build to rent. As for rent to buy, it's probably not something that we'll explore just because our goal is to build, you know, a larger, more comprehensive portfolio of communities. But something that I think holds a lot of promise as the housing price to income ratio continues to move off of the charts exponentially, mm-hmm. right? To be able to pay down some of your principal and with your existing rent. If you're going to pay for rent anyway, might as well go towards a down payment. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. You know, and short-term leasing is something that we may explore, we may not. To your point of, you know, your your last year's experience of going around the country and getting to stay in, in cities and work remotely and experience different places is uh, an incredible unlock. And one I think that is difficult to grasp because it's happened in real time. Mm-hmm. You know, the biggest change in urban mobility patterns in, one could argue, you know, in millennia, you've always had to be connected to where you work. Uh, <laughs> <Lol. laughs> crazy now, right? Like as we're zooming and we're talking about this, it's crazy. 
but now you can be uh, disaggregated from that, which yeah. is incredibly powerful. And there will be, you know, many histories written about this moment. And so to sit back and, and appreciate that is something that I try to do and, and remind mm-hmm. myself of. And I think the nature of where our properties are and the type of communities they will be, they will be desirable if we were to open up them to be short-term rental opportunities. Mm-hmm. It's on the table. It's not something we're committing to right now. Okay. So this has been wonderfully enlightening. Thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast, Kobe. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, a lot of fun. This is uh, something that I don't get as much being at home for the past two years, <laughs> you know, as with everybody else. So oh, of it, course. it's been great. Awesome. So listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience. And please follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team and Michael Graves and Redist, and many of our spectacular guests like Kobe on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, seven tips on how to stand out in your field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Kobe and I have made donations to Habitat for Humanity, which brings people together to build homes and communities and together hope. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building.